That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I'm Ken Levine, your podcast host. This week, part two of my two-part interview with writer-director Nicholas Meyer. And if I do say so myself... This is one of the best episodes ever of my podcast. How's that for a tease? Nicholas Meyer, in case you uh, don't know, weren't around last week, uh, is the author of some terrific novels, including his first one, 7% Solution, which in 1974 was on the New York Times bestseller list for 40 weeks. He's been nominated for an Academy Award for three Emmy Awards and many more. He directed a TV movie that was seen by a hundred million people. If you missed part one after you listen to this one, go back and check that out. This week, we talk a lot about uh, directing, first-time directing, and Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan. And when you hear how that whole thing was developed, uh, how it unfolded, it's quite an amazing story. If you are a Star Trek fan, you are going to want to hear this. And we'll talk about the movie that uh, he directed, David Isaacs and I wrote, called Volunteers. How often does the director still talk to his writers? Well, That's the kind of relationship we had with Nicholas Meyer. So that's this week. Right now, part two with Nicholas Meyer on Hollywood and Levine. When the 7% solution was optioned for the movies, I said, I will only sell you the book on condition that I write the screenplay. And this time I said, I will only sell you the screenplay on condition that I direct the movie. And the fact that I had been nominated for an Oscar for the 7% solution, that kind of gave me sort of street cred. Mm-hmm. And that and that's how I was given permission to direct what became Time After Time. A great, great movie. What was it like your first couple of days on the set as a director? Were you like chomping at the bit or were you like terrified with all of these people and everyone? It's like, okay, what do you want? Yeah, I was chomping at the terrified bit, which is to say <laughs> both, both things were happening at the same time. I made a speech to people when I was hiring them, whether it was the, the DP or the editor or whatever. I would say, look, I know nothing. 
So you're going to have to teach me. You're going to have to not mind teaching me. And you're going to have to not mind if having taught me, I still want to do it my way. You, you can't go away angry. And anybody who could withstand that catechism and smile, uh, and I pick, you know, and with Herb's help and advice, I picked the best people and people who were willing to to be part of that team configuration. And when people found out on the crew that I was really open to suggestions, I reserved the right to say no. I'm going to get credit for it one way or the other. Um, then this wonderful collaborative thing happened. I'll never forget, we were shooting a scene. We were in the middle of the shoot somewhere. And uh, we broke for lunch. And a lighting guy came down from the gators and everybody was wandering off to eat. And he said, you're the writer of this thing, aren't you? As well as the director. And I said, yes. And he said, well, if you're asking me, he was saying the wrong thing there. And I said, really? What should he have said? <laughs> and he reprised an earlier line in the script that really wanted to be repeated at this moment. <laughs> that was so much better than the really now appalling line that I had written. I was just, my line was so stupid, I couldn't believe it compared to what he had come up with. And I thought, hang on a minute, you're the director. We come back and reshoot the line after lunch, which we did. And I think I made it clear to the crew, to everybody, that there was this gentleman way up high <laughs> who had, you know, had this brainstorm. And in a way, it was my happiest moment on the movie because I realized that what I was doing was sufficiently interesting to this man that he came down. I mean, he would have come down anyway, but he came down to actually talk to me with his idea. And also that he felt comfortable enough to do that, that it wasn't, you know, if it had been Stanley Kubrick, he would have been fired or something. But I, I knew I needed all the help I could get. I could, I could say no to things. And I certainly didn't want to hear suggestions while we were rolling. But and, and then it got around. And so other people started contributing, people who worked outside of their specialty. Like it wasn't just the makeup man making suggestions about the makeup or the costumer saying, you know, something about the costumes. It was like everybody was getting into the act about how to make this thing better. It was more became more like a European crew. You know, in America, you look at dailies and you say to the costumer, what did you think of the scene? And she says, well, the seams were all straight. And they don't <laughs> want to go beyond, right. you know, right. their fiefdom. Anyway, so I was terrified a lot of the time, certainly at the beginning. I, I you know, I, I didn't know a lot. There were things I was good at. I knew that the script was really good. 
I was familiar one way or another with editing. I'd done a lot of editing, both on paper and I had directed plays on the radio and, and I had made little films when I was a kid. So yes, I knew about that. The camera, I came to late and it shows, you know, I was playing with a typewriter while Spielberg was playing with a Bolex. It, <laughs> you, you can see, um, but uh, I, I was sort of learning on the job and getting bolder as the shoot went along. I look forward to the Fablemeyer. You, you know your yes, yeah. my version. Yeah, your your well, version. Well, for 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 people who've seen the Fablemans, which is a movie I liked a great deal, but it was very easy for me to identify with because as a kid. My dad and I collaborated on making a movie of Around the World in 80 Days. I went to see the movie when I was 11 at the Rivoli Theater, and I suddenly my ambition crystallized. I, I wanted to make movies, and I wasn't going to wait till I was 12, um, although it took a year to prep this thing. But I made my own movie of Around the World in 80 Days, and it took five years. And we edited on the kitchen table and all kinds. Of... So when I watched The Fablemans, I thought this was really quite interesting. The parental roles were a little bit reversed. In The Fablemans, uh, Spielberg's mom is the artistic uh, sort of encourager and backer. And the father keeps referring to it as your hobby. My mother was a concert pianist and she was very involved in being a concert pianist. Um, my my dad was a doctor, a shrink, but he was a very creative person. And he fell in with this whole collaborative, let's make a movie together, uh, in a way that my mom never did. So I, I watched the family dynamic playing out in the movie with some interesting points of identification. I want to move on now to Star Trek. Uh, probably more people know you from Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan than than anything else. The first Star Trek movie came out, great anticipation. Quite honestly, it was ponderous. And it, I guess, sold enough tickets that it was, you know, worth a, a sequel. How did you come aboard and what did you do to inject the fun to turn it suddenly into just a a great ride? Well, you know, movies are like souffles. They either rise or they don't. And even professional chefs, I think, are sometimes surprised by what does and doesn't work. Um I had never seen the Star Trek television series when I was in college and it was on the air. If I happened to be in front of a TV, it, it never attracted my attention. It just looked goofy to me. And they were running around in Dr. Denton's and the sets looked cheesy and the guy had pointy ears and I just kept going. I think it's fair to say that I missed everything and anything that was different important or remarkable about Star Trek. I, as I say, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I I missed 
the international uh, interracial uh, caste. I missed the presence of a of a Russian in the in, I, I, everything. Well, went right by me. Um, or the notion that people of goodwill could come together and solve problems. Uh, you know, I wasn't around long enough for that. Uh, and I didn't see the feature film, which was a runaway production. In 1979, it cost $45 million. <laughs> Today, that would be, you know, my dinner with Andre. Uh, yeah, you bet. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, Today, it would have cost, you know, $200 million mm -hmm. or something. Um, but a, a friend of mine, uh, a, a woman named Karen Moore, who was then an executive at Paramount uh, and a childhood friend, said, you should uh, go to Paramount and, and meet Harve Bennett, uh, who is in charge of making the second Star Trek movie. I think you guys would get along. And I said, Star Trek, is that the one with the man with pointy ears? And she said, you are such an effing snob, I can't believe it. Why don't you climb off your high intellectual horse and have a beer with this man? So I did. And we got along like a house on fire. I, I adored Harv Bennett from the get-go. He had, for the record, produced a lot of television. Six Million Dollar Man mod squad and i think what was arguably the first miniseries rich man poor man mm -hmm. and uh so he showed me the feature film which i didn't understand um he showed me some episodes of the tv show he had watched all 59 of them or whatever it was he, he watched all of them and yeah star trek started to remind me of something that i did like and it, it took me a while because it always takes me a while to remember that when I was reading Sherlock Holmes, I was also reading these books called The Adventures of Captain Horatio Hornblower. And Hornblower was a captain in the Royal Navy during the Napoleonic Wars. And he had lots of adventures and he had a girl in every port. And when you're 13, this this sounds really cool. So I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is Hornblower. Star Trek is Hornblower in outer space. It's submarines. It's destroyers. And I started really jonesing to do my Hornblower in space movie. And Harv said, uh, you know, draft five is coming in. And I said, great, great. You know, send it to me. You know, and then weeks went by and I woke up one morning. I said, whatever <laughs> happened to this? star trek thing um and uh i called him up and i said well you know where's the script and he said oh i it, it it isn't good i can't show it to you i said well what about draft four or draft three and he said kid he always called me kid you, you don't get it uh, these are simply five discreet attempts to get a second star trek movie they're not related. And I said, well, can I read them all? Can you send them all? He said, really? And in those days, you didn't hit send. Yeah. A van, a right. van, a van Guy comes up, up with a box. Yeah. 
several boxes, several boxes. And I'm a slow reader. But I sat there and plowed through this stuff. And basically, what I suggested to them and what we ultimately did was I said, let's get a legal pad and write down, make a list of things that we like in these five scripts. Could be a major plot, could be a subplot, could be a sequence, could be a scene, could be a line of dialogue, could be a character. I don't care. Let me make a list. And then I'll try to write a screenplay that encompasses as many of these things as we like. And the short version of the story is that's what I did. And, you know, we made uh, Khan, which was uh, Harv's idea to bring back Khan, um, and the Genesis project we got from someplace, and Lieutenant Savick was something, and the simulator sequence was something, and Kirk meets his son was something, and somehow fiddling with a, like a Rubik's Cube. And I only had 12 days to do it. 12 because, days? Yeah, wow. because, yeah, because, <laughs> well, they, I was told when I made my suggestion that it wouldn't work because the special effects house, Industrial Light and Magic, who was going to do the special effects shots, could not guarantee delivery of those shots in time for the June opening unless they had a script in 12 days. And I said, what, what June opening? And they said, well, <laughs> the, the film is going to open on the, something in June. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, you, you booked this movie into theaters and there's no movie? And they said, well, yes, that's the way it's always, that's how we do it. So anyway, 12 days of which, by the way, I have no recollection I went into a kind of trance and took dictation from God, which we call inspiration. Um, you have to back up in your interview to find all that. Uh, and I don't I don't remember anything except my back was out by the end of it. Um, and yes, we rewrote it. We tweaked it. We did things to it after that. But it was enough after 12 days. You know, it was like the Constitution. You can amend it. Till the cows come home, but this is the basic thing, and that's how the script got written. Um, and it was all done sub rosa. I didn't get paid, I didn't get the credit, whatever. And the dialogue was 99% mine. Well, well, like I said, I, I think of all of the Star Trek movies, of all of the genres, of the Voyager and the different crews. Uh, to me, that's the one that really stands out as the best. You know, there's so many projects that you've done and, you know, we could take 10 minutes on, on each one, but I want to skip to a, a project that you directed in 1985, a comedy called Volunteers. Not sure you remember it. Um I remember it. Yeah. I, I, I remember it, and I know you remember it because you wrote it. <laughs> right, David and I, David Isaacs and I, wrote this this movie, and thankfully you directed it. You had not done a comedy. What drew you to this material? Besides, of course, the crackling dialogue in the script. Well, 
<clears throat> first of all, I rightly or wrongly, I think of myself as funny. Um, other people may have varying opinions on this subject. Uh, but I should also interject here when people say, you know, what are you? Are you a novelist? Are you a filmmaker? Do you are you a writer? Are you a director? And I, on my website, which says nicholas-meyer.com, it says storyteller. I'm a storyteller. And I have never much cared what kind of story it was or what genre it fits into. Is it a book? Is it a movie? Is it television? Am I writing it? Am I directing it? Um, is it a comedy? Is it historical? Is it science fiction? Is it Sherlock Holmes or Star Trek or or nuclear war the day after? Um, all I asked was that it be a good story. And somebody said, what's, what's your definition of a good story? And I said, a good story is a story that once you've heard it, you understand why I wanted to tell it to you. Now, as it happened in the case of your screenplay, I was on my honeymoon. Uh, I didn't get married till I was 38 because, as I say, I do everything very slowly. And I was on my honeymoon and I was given this screenplay to read. And I just remember laughing and laughing and laughing and so it, I, I've never really strategized about what my career is and what I should be doing. So, for example, when I was offered the day after to make into a television movie, uh, it was considered a step down for a feature director to direct a television movie. But I, I didn't care. I had other reasons for thinking that I should do this. And by the same token, the fact that this was a comedy and I had never directed a comedy. Well, I think I'd only directed a couple of films by that point anyway. So I was still trying this and that. And all I knew was that it had made me laugh so hard. Um, and it was so wonderfully politically incorrect, my favorite two words, um, that I said, you know what we're going to do for our honeymoon? We're going to make this movie. And that's how I came to it. And that was the frame of mind in which I came to it. Well, you talked about how Herbert Ross was very welcoming and how uh, all these other people were helpful to you. And, and I have to say, you know, with extreme gratitude, how you were very open to our suggestions. You filmed the movie in uh, Mexico and we were rewriting another movie and couldn't go, but you allowed us to watch dailies. Uh, you allowed us to, to be there for um, uh, editing and and make suggestions and uh as you said how they shot your script in seven percent solution you shot ours you well, you really did a lot I of directors will just rewrite 
and put their own thumbprints on everything. You shot our script. God bless you. Well, that was the that was the reason I was doing the movie because the screenplay had made me laugh. I think, interestingly enough, I made mistakes doing it, um, and I think you were aware of these mistakes. I thought that if something was funny, anything was funny, no matter how it was funny, it could go into the script. And I'm not always sure that that's true. Um, and I think that sometimes I was sort of coloring outside the lines in ways that may have violated a, a reality. In a way, I think sometimes when I was doing that movie, I was having too much fun. And um, Henry James said that that life is hot, but art is cool. If you are the puppeteer, you cannot be out front sobbing, or for that matter, laughing at the performance. You've got to stay dry-eyed backstage and make sure that the strings do not become tangled. And I think sometimes while I was making that movie, I forgot to stay dry-eyed and make sure the strings weren't tangled. Uh, I, I was having such a wonderful time with these amazingly talented people, Tom Hanks, John Candy, um, uh, Tim Thomerson, Rita Wilson. Uh, I, I introduced Tom to his to his wife by casting her in the in the movie. Um, and it was such a joyous experience. And I think some of the joy definitely comes across. But uh, I'd like to remake it. I'd like to do it again, no, knowing what I now know. As, as well, you people. have our you have our permission. Okay, <laughs> you might have to do some recasting. You know, you mentioned John Candy, and I just want to take a moment, you know, in tribute to just how wonderful and gifted, and what a nice human being John Candy was. He not only was he when we when we were rehearsing this. I I believe in rehearsing. Um, before you start rolling cameras. I don't want to over-rehearse because you'll lose some spontaneity. But I think <clears throat> you learn things when you rehearse and the actors learn things. They learn about each other. They learn about the director. They learn, if you sort of, you're prepared, then when you go on the set, everyone has a slightly better sense of how this is supposed to work. Mm -hmm. And it, in a way, it frees you up to fool around more because you know what the parameters are. And we have, there's a scene where Tom Hanks first meets John Candy and he meets him on an airplane. They're sitting next to each other for like a million hours. And we started with a pair of folding chairs in a rehearsal room in Los Angeles. And Tom could not get through the scene with John Candy without breaking up or what they call corpsing in England. It was just like he he couldn't watch him say his 
lines and he was supposed to watch him absolutely deadpan and he, he and he couldn't do it and i thought well that will disappear you know when we're actually shooting it'll be four months later we'll whatever there we are in mexico sitting inside a 707 on the tarmac in the middle of nowhere trying to shoot this scene and he still John Candy was so funny, was so impossibly funny that everybody, not only Tom, but the whole crew, we were all biting the inside of our cheeks to stop ourselves from making noises and guffaws um, over what this man was able to do. And yes, he was a very sweet man. Did you know that uh, Tom and Rita had this spark and that things were happening off camera? I'd like to say I can remember, and the truth is that I don't think I can. And by the way, the same thing happened on my first movie on Time After Time, that Malcolm Malcolm McDowell and Mary Steenburgen were falling in love on camera. And I thought, Boy, am I a good director. Am I getting great performances out of these? I am I am so good. And Herb Jaffe's wife, Nell, said, I, I think they're having an affair here. And I said, No, no, that really? Um, and so I don't remember to what degree uh Tom and Rita were falling in love during the course of the movie. They obviously were. Um but in a way, so was I, as I say, it was sort of an extended honeymoon making this thing. So I can't look you in the Zoom face and and tell you that I that I knew because I, I can't remember if or when I did. On your uh, website, you should amend it to say Nicholas Meyer, storyteller, matchmaker. Yenta, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> storyteller and Yenta, yeah. Well... Happily, for whatever reason, Volunteers continues to play on HBO and other places. Uh, it it has always done really well ratings wise, and it's it, interesting during the pandemic lockdown. Uh, you know, looking for things to do, and uh, and I went through my collection of of DVDs, and we watched a lot of our old favorite movies again. And I came upon volunteers and I said to my wife, you know what? It's been years since I've seen this movie. Let's put it in. You know, if, if we get bored, it's not like, I don't know how it ends. (laughs) So I put it in and played it. And oddly, I like it more now than I did then. I, I, and it's usually the opposite effect. But it's like, you know what? It's just a fun story and it moves along and it's not stupid. It's like, you know, this is pretty good. Well, first of all, thank you, you know, a, a souffle that 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 rose late, maybe, but but finally got up there. Um, it's interesting to watch stuff or read books years later. I referred earlier 
to the phenomenon of saying, wow, I did this. I, you know, I can't remember one of, I guess one of my favorite movies that I ever directed is a movie called the deceivers with Pierce Brosnan that we shot in, in India. And it's got all the favorite things that I loved about a certain kind of movie. It's got a cavalry charge. It's got everything. And I, when you look at these things years later, and you you come away initially with all the scars and memories of things that didn't quite happen the way you wanted and so forth. I remember that I had a certain memory of the 7% solution, which was fairly critical uh, for, for different things, which I'm not going to pollute anybody else's perceptions with. Um, but when I saw it many years later, just as when I saw The Wrath of Khan many years later, uh, you see it more as an independent artifact and less um, wedded and inextricably intertwined with the memories of what you were doing when it when you mm -hmm. created it. And it, it's interesting because some things do, in fact, come out better seven uh, percent for sure um and and some not so much um so the idea particularly that the movie wore well when you saw it and it, and as you said just a minute ago it is about something um and that's interesting that and, and i think that's the kind of thing that makes things last is if there's something in it that can sort of stick to your ribs, um, whether you planned it that way or not. Yeah. Um, and finally, I want to talk about your current novel, The Return of the Pharaoh. Tell us a little bit about that. So, uh, you know, I'm, I got to have you, you know, hawking something. You know, you, you come on this thing, you know, you got to sell some books or promote a movie or something. So, <laughs> well, I'm doing uh, the, the the Return of the Pharaoh is my fifth Sherlock Holmes novel. After the 7% Solution came the West End Horror. Then came the Canary Trainer, which is about Holmes and the Phantom of the Opera. Um, then came... The Adventure of the Peculiar Protocols, uh, which is about the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, um, the most famous and destructive hoax of all time. And The Return of the Pharaoh, my agent, Alan Gasmer, has been my agent for many years, said, what about doing homes in Egypt and I instantly sparked to that idea. And the result, because I'd been, I was in Egypt in 1979. And so I had very vivid memories of it. And like everybody else, I was fans of Egyptian movies, whether it's the Egyptian or Land of the Pharaohs or The Mummy or The Return of the Mummy mm. or Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy. Uh, also, uh, I was very interested from the time I was a kid in archaeology. So, in fact, the first screenplay that I 
wrote when I was 17 or 18, first full length, was the life of Heinrich Schliemann. Um, I, the world was really panting for this. Um, Schliemann was the self-styled archaeologist who discovered Troy. And so I was interested in archaeology and I was interested in Howard Carter, who in 1922 unearthed uh, the tomb of King Tut, Tutankhamun. And King Tut's tomb is important, be not because Tut was important, because he wasn't, um, but it was the only tomb ever discovered that had not been looted centuries earlier by thieves. So Tut's treasure, which is always going on tour, um, is a remarkable uh, preservation of these ancient, ancient Egyptian glories. And so the idea of sticking homes, again, did the chronology work? Is there a way to fit him in? And the, and the answer was, yes, there is a way to fit him in. Um, and so I did. And going in, and I, I actually went inside the Great Pyramid in, in Giza, which is the suburb of Cairo. And the only way you can get into the Great Pyramid is to crawl in through the robber's entrance, which is a very small entrance. Yeah. These, 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 yes, not for, not for claustrophobic people. Yeah. Out of, you can't back you. You can't back out because there's people behind you. <laughs> so uh, you're 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 crawling up, you know, something close to the height of you know, level one of the Eiffel Tower. Um, and so I had very vivid memories of this, and I have a lot of Egyptian. I read a lot of books about Tut and about uh, Akhenaten and and so forth and you plug in homes into this somehow Rubik's Cube um, and one of the things that was true in 1911 when the novel is set is that there was something called Egyptomania in which very rich people were people who were scientists who had financial backing were all descending on Egypt to discover its ancient treasures. And in many cases, to make off with them. A lot of museums around the world have what are, are in a sense, stolen uh, pieces of Egyptian culture, Egyptian um treasure egyptian their it's their patrimony um and do we really like the idea of giggling school children wandering among the mummies of dead people and having a giggle um <clears throat> is that really you should pardon the expression kosher um so out of that i wrote a treasure hunting Sherlock Holmes story that, again, I'm not the best judge of my own work, but it's fantastic. Uh, <laughs> and it's available on Amazon and wherever you wherever you buy. It's an audio. Book. It's an audio book. It's a Kindle. 
Uh, and I was very persnickety about the audio um, reader of my of that one and the protocols. And I got David Robb. Um, I didn't want a Euro trash English accent. I didn't want somebody who sounded like John Major or Tony Blair. I wanted an, an old time Oxbridge accent. And I picked David Robb, who plays the doctor on Downton Abbey. Mm. Uh, um, and I directed him in The Deceivers, and we've been friends ever since. And I said, "You're gonna, you'll make a great Watson." And Watson narrates the Holmes stories, so that's how that happened. That's great. Well, Nick, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much. And again, thanks for doing such a great job on uh, volunteers and not kicking us off the. Uh... Well, listen, it's uh, I've had a, I'm having a lucky life so far, as the man said, when he passed the 54th floor, leaping off the Empire State Building. <laughs> Everything's been very good. <clears throat> and uh, volunteers, certainly part of that. And thanks for having me on. I had a good time and I hope I didn't talk to death. Anybody. Was that right? Was he a good guest? Wow. Nicholas Meyer, and our thanks to Nick. Also, our thanks to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. My email address, should you wish to get in touch, is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I am on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine, where I feature a number of my cartoons, those that got printed by The New Yorker, and those that... Hmm, did not. Anyway, uh, come back next week for more. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week. Bye. Hollywood and the Vine.